Today's episode of Halloween Unmasked is brought to you by Shudder, the premium video streaming service for all of you horror geeks out there. On Shudder right now, they actually have Halloween 1, Halloween 4, and Halloween 5, movies we're going to be talking about in this episode. And if you want to watch them right now, you can go to Shudder for just $4.99 a month, $49 a year, and subscribe. And actually, you can try it free right now for 14 days when you go to Shudder.com slash podcast and use the promo code UNMASKED. That is Shudder, S-H-U-D-D-E-R dot com slash podcast, promo code UNMASKED to get your Halloween nerdery on right now. How now, cried Arthur, let no one pass this way without a fight. That so, said the knight, in a bold and haughty manner. I don't like that story. Tommy Doyle, boy critic, used to want to hear old-fashioned tales with classic heroes. Suddenly, all this old stuff is boring, and his babysitter, Laurie Strode, is confused. I thought King Arthur was your favorite. Not anymore. Now, Tommy's obsessed with junk. Forget the old stuff. He wants what's new, even if it's formulaic, and even if he's got to keep it stashed under the couch. Why do you keep them under there? Mom doesn't like me to have them. Laser man. Neutron man. I can understand why. Tarantula man. And the audiences watching Tommy and Laurie in 1978 also left the theater obsessed with a new kind of story. Before Halloween, the biggest horror stars were Dracula and Frankenstein and the devil, classic nightmares as venerable as King Arthur. After Halloween, after this low-budget movie made millions, there were slasher killers like Michael Myers. Thanks to those copycats, Halloween is the moment when, like Tommy, our taste changed. Which is what today's episode is about. Slasher copycats and Halloween sequels and what happened to horror after 1978. Halloween is the demarcation point between the modern horror movie versus the horror movie from way back. It would have been foolish to think nobody was going to rip it off. I mean, what's shocking is how many people ripped it off and how shamelessly. Bill Simmons loves Halloween the way that Tommy loves comic books. Mostly. But he's got some quibbles. Believe me, no movie has more stupid flaws than Halloween 1 and... We still love it anyway. It has some monster flaws. What are the monster flaws? Oh, my God. Well, to start with, I mean, I've always been fascinated by the car. So Myers escapes. He takes Dr. Loomis's car. There's no way he would know how to drive. Bill has a problem with the fact that Michael can drive, even though he's been institutionalized since he was eight. And that question gets brought up in the movie, too. Now, for God's sakes, he can't drive a car. He was doing very well last night. Maybe someone around here gave him lessons. But somehow hops in the car and he's off. And then drives 150 miles to Haddonfield. The car apparently is like the earliest version of a Tesla ever. Um, never never needs gas, anything. He's just driving around Haddonfield all day stalking babysitters. Okay, fair. Let me run the numbers. The car that Michael steals is a 1978 Ford LTD station wagon that gets, on average, 11 miles to the gallon which means it can go about 200 miles on a full tank. So, yes, unless Loomis had hit pause on mansplaining the nature of evil to pull over and fill up on the way to the mental hospital, Michael should have run out of gas before nightfall. Anything else? There's a lot of flaws. Nobody calls in the the mysterious guy with the mask who's driving around town, creepy, in a creepy green station wagon. That's never called into the police. And then Dr. Loomis, they have this whole plan of... of, uh, you know, should we tell everyone in Haddonfield that this escape maniac is on loose? And he's like, no, they'll see him on every street corner. It's like, maybe that's a good idea. He just escaped from a mental hospital and he's here to murder everybody. We, we should tell them. Uh, the biggest flaw in the whole movie, though, the sheriff 
whose daughter gets her throat slit. But uh, the sheriff's her dad knows that the escape maniac is out there. Doesn't give the heads up to the daughter. I have a daughter. Guess what? My daughter's not babysitting when the escaped homicidal maniac is back in town. She's she's giving up the job. Or I'm go I'm sending a cop over there to be safe. Bad job by the dad. Just was. Bad job. And yet, ultimately, none of those problems matter to Bill. And here's the thing. When you've seen a movie like 330 times, you, can, you start to pick things apart, right? So this is all out of love. I love Halloween. Bill loves Halloween so much that he's let me, your host Amy Nicholson, and I make this whole podcast about it. Bill was the same age as Tommy Doyle when he saw Halloween, and his taste changed overnight, too. He got obsessed with slasher movies and saw as many as he could, even when he knew that, like, Laser Man, Neutron Man, Tarantula Man, they were just repeating a formula. So, Halloween ripoff movies. Prom Night, He Knows You're Alone. He Knows You're Alone was, like, basically Halloween again. New Year's Evil, Happy Birthday to Me, Silent Scream, Terror Train, The Prowler, My Bloody Valentine. All slasher movies, all with final girls, Almost all set on special occasions, and... All these movies can go to hell. Ouch. But even if you agree with Bill, on this episode of Halloween Unmasked, we're going to talk about what happened in horror once everyone started to rip off Michael Myers. And then we're going to get into the sequels where the Halloween franchise started copying the copycats. We're going to cover 30 years of films from the slasher craze of the late 70s and early 80s to Rob Zombie's controversial Halloween reboots unleashed a decade ago. That is a lot of horror history to cover, so I've invited two awesome horror experts onto today's show. Let's start by talking to Fangoria Magazine's editor-in-chief, Phil Nobile Jr. I think people saw Halloween as a really easy-to-copy template because it's, it is simplicity itself. It's a very small cast. It is a confined series of locations. It's a very simple premise, and it's got a great hook, whether that's a summer camp or whether that's a high school gymnasium on prom night, whether that's a train that's got a bunch of people partying on it, you can, you can replicate the, uh, the general scenario of Halloween and swap out almost any specifics, and as they learned, people will come and see it. The first film to test that theory was Friday the 13th. As we mentioned in our Jamie Lee Curtis episode, it was created by a softcore porn guy named Sean Cunningham. Sean saw young girls and guys having sex and getting stabbed, and he thought, hey, I can do that. So he did, at Camp Crystal Lake, on another spooky holiday, Friday the 13th, starring a killer who started out as a crazy, heartbroken mom, and then became her immortal mask-wearing son. I think there's a cynicism evident in Friday the 13th that betrays Sean Cunningham's pornography origins. He's, he's a guy who's in business. He's not an artist. He's not pretending to be an artist. He's on the scene to make money, and he very wisely sees something coming with Halloween, and is pretty much first in line to sort of uh, milk that cow. And it was clearly a Halloween ripoff. It was like Michael Myers is now at summer camp. And this mute killer has a bigger knife and a bigger body count. But even though it was an obvious copy, Friday the 13th was a huge success. Both films were cheap flicks that basically printed money, and so were a lot of the films that followed, but with worse and worse quality and worse box office. What I think happened is that Halloween created a template, and then right before it went to the printers, Friday the 13th scribbled all over it so that the other movies in this slasher gold rush misread what Halloween did so well. 
Halloween was realistic and sincere and mysterious and bloodless. Friday the 13th is cartoonish and unempathetic with a pat psychological answer as to why Mrs. Voorhees kills. Did you know that a young boy drowned the year before those two others were killed? The counselors weren't paying any attention. They were making love while that young boy drowned. Ah, yes. Sex equals death. Gory, bloody, death. One of the things Sean Cunningham noticed about Halloween is that it was, for all of its, you know, scares and and body count issues, it was pretty demure about the violence. So one of his ideas was to ramp up the on-screen violence. To do that, Sean hired a special effects whiz named Tom Savini. Tom was a combat photographer in Vietnam, and on the Friday the 13th films, he had a mission. His mission on these films, to hear him say it, was to create in himself the feeling that he felt when he would see real-life gore and viscera in Vietnam. And at the same time, photographing that stuff in Vietnam kind of numbed him to it in a way. And it made, you know, he looking at it from behind the photographer's lens, he kind of became more analytical about what a torn off arm looks like, what someone who's torn in half looks like, or who's blown in half by a, a grenade. Uh, and he took that, that sort of clinical sensibility that he had developed maybe as a shield in Vietnam and applied it to these slasher films. Necks spurted blood. Faces were gashed by hatchets. Eyeballs got shot through with arrows. And then at the end, Mrs. Voorhees got decapitated. You could see her head go flying. I mean, that makes me think that our whole generation that grew up on slasher films almost got Vietnam by proxy. Maybe that might be a subconscious sort of uh, reason for the slasher craze doing what it did. Is that how many, how many of those folks watching those movies in 1981 and 1982 had big brothers that went to Vietnam and came back different or didn't come back at all and or had heard stories or watched those newsreel f- clips or maybe had nightmares about watching this stuff or hearing these stories. It's a way to sort of tame the boogeyman to kind of, again, put, put all that horrible stuff in a box, an easy-to-digest, easily formatted box where you know what A, B, and C lead to and it's in a way soothing. Soothing might not be the word we'd all pick. Critics called Friday the 13th nauseating, dreadful, sickening, gruesome, and shamelessly bad. Gene Siskel called Sean Cunningham, quote, one of the most despicable creatures to infect the movie business. And then he and Roger Ebert spent a whole episode trashing bad Halloween knockoffs. I think a lot of people have the wrong idea. They identify these films with earlier thrillers like Psycho or even a more recent film like Halloween, which we both liked. These films aren't in the same category. These films hate women. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the audiences that go to them don't seem to like women too much either. Sisko and Ebert and Phil are right that something deep and psychological shifted in the audience when slasher films got bloodier. As we talked about earlier, we cared about Laurie Strode and her friends. It wasn't easy to watch Linda and Annie die, but at least their deaths weren't gross. They never took a hatchet to the face. I mean, we never even saw them bleed. We identified with Linda and Annie and Laurie, but we don't identify as much with the victims in slasher films who are basically created just to get gruesomely murdered. There's two things happening here. One, there's a limit to our imagination. When a character on screen gets, like, a paper cut, We wince because we empathize. But when someone gets brutally sawed in half and their guts are all over the place, that is something very, very far away from our life experience, and we mentally step back. And point two, these victims aren't written as lovingly as Deborah Hill wrote Linda and Annie and Laurie. They're just ground meat stuffed into a mold. You're introduced to your cast of characters, and they tend to not vary very much. You've got 
you know, the, 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 uh, the good girl and you've got the wild girl and you've got the comic relief. Honestly, that's kind of the deal we make when we buy a ticket preparing to watch a bunch of people die violently. We accept that these characters aren't deep. Maybe it even helps us step back, get emotional distance, because when the characters are lame stock characters, you can make that switch from aching to protect them, the way that you felt about Laurie, to just being curious how creatively they'll die. There's gore, but the gore is, is on the level of a magic trick. You just want to see the different ways that they're killing people. Like, this guy's getting it with a garden shears. This person's getting it with a you know chainsaw. This person's getting it with... Um, a bandsaw. You know, there's like they, they use the whole tool shed there. Which is what had Siskel and Ebert so upset. And to sit there surrounded by people who are identifying not with the victim, but with the attacker, with the killer, who are cheering these killers on, is a very scary experience. Yeah, the movies are played so that they really are in favor almost of the killer and really against the women cowering back. I don't think we can stress this too strongly, that we're not talking about a, just a couple of films. It seems like we're getting new ones of these kind of films every other week. Siskel had a theory. I'm convinced it has something to do with the growth of the women's movement in America in the last decade. I think that these films are some sort of primordial response <laughs> by some very sick people of men saying, get back in your place, women. Uh, these women in the films are typically portrayed as independent, as sexual, as enjoying life. And the killer typically, not all the time, but most often, mm -hmm. is a man who is sexually frustrated with these new aggressive women. And so he strikes back at them. He throws knives at them. He can't deal with them. He cuts them up. He kills them. Get back in your place. It's against the women's movement. The moment that a woman starts making decisions for herself in these movies, yeah. you can almost bet she's going to end up paying with her life and horribly. That's true for a lot of these copycats. But it wasn't really true for Laurie Strode, or for John Carpenter, or for Deborah Hill. And that the Halloween franchise would wind up imitating these films, it's like plagiarizing from someone who stole your homework and crumpled it up into a spitball and then threw it back in your face. But it did. John and Deborah didn't mean to. Their next movie, The Fog, was more of an old-school horror film with ghost pirates than part of this psychopath slasher trend. The Fog did okay, but not great. So, when John and Deborah made Halloween 2 next, they were pressured to make sure that Halloween 2 was a big success, which meant mimicking all the other slashers by getting super gory. It's clear that the franchise has changed from the first death, when a teen girl gets stabbed through the neck and blood spatters all over her face. There's a hammer to the head, a syringe in an eyeball, a syringe in a brain, a nurse somehow drained of blood, a another nurse stabbed with a scalpel and hoisted into the air so we can see her shoes fall off. The worst is when a naked woman is dunked over and over into a boiling hot tub and her skin cooks and peels away until you can see her skull. And to John and Deborah and Jamie Lee, Halloween 2 was almost just as painful to make. It was awful, literally, because the hospital they shot at was right underneath an airplane flight path, so every couple of minutes they would have to stop shooting and wait for the loud engine noise to go away. Also, Jamie Lee hated her wig, but most of all, they just didn't want to do a sequel. Here is where the lawsuits come in. Halloween producer Erwin Yablins thought they had a deal to make The Fog with him. And when John and Deborah broke that deal, Erwin pressured them to write and produce Halloween 2 kinda sorta under duress, but also with the promise of making some easy money. We're about to launch into a lot of talk about the rest of the sequels, so let's take a minute right here to be clear about who is running the Halloween franchise going forward. If you are a nerd for hot producer gossip, awesome. And if not, here's just a quick story about how Hollywood works. Maybe you've wondered why I keep talking about Erwin Yablins when Halloween's opening credits say Mustafa Akkad presents. 
Musaf Akkad was not a horror guy. He was a director in the Lawrence of Arabia mold who wanted to make expensive historical desert epics in the Middle East. I'll let his son Malik describe him. My dad was uh, an amazing, amazing figure, uh, full of life, um, huge personality, loved people. He was always the center of attention, fantastic storyteller, uh, super funny, and also very much a man of the world. Erwin met Mustafa when he distributed Mustafa's first film, Muhammad, Messenger of God, in America, where it was renamed The Message. And the fact that my father would choose for his first big directorial debut one of the most sensitive subject matters, uh, the story of the beginnings of Islam, uh, was a very brave thing. Some would say a bit crazy, but um, he was undeterred. On the night of The Message's premiere in 1977, a group of extremists took 149 people hostage in Washington, D.C. They were angry that the message might depict the prophet Muhammad, and so they demanded that Irwin and Mustafa cancel the premiere. They did, but even so, one hostage died. That awful night bonded Irwin and Mustafa, and shortly after, Irwin had the idea for Halloween, and he asked Mustafa for the money to make it. Mustafa had access to a lot of money, some of which came from Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi, is that the same money Mustafa gave Erwin? It was Halloween possibly funded by Gaddafi? I got up the nerve to ask Erwin and Malik about it. Yeah, that is a weird question. I guess that's something that we, we don't have the answers to or I don't have the answers to. But um, Gaddafi did, in fact, uh, finance a, a big portion of the message. Who knows where it came from? It could have come from anywhere. But the Gaddafi was definitely putting money into Mustafa's projects. That was a little awkward and inconclusive, but I had to ask. Anyway, when Halloween was finished, Erwin showed a cut to Mustafa, who thought it was great, and said, I want my name in the opening credits. And since it was Mustafa's money, Erwin agreed, and he later called that moment the biggest regret of his life. And eventually, Mustafa's access to a big checkbook let him buy control of the Halloween franchise. Here's what's happening to Halloween's core crew while the franchise goes on without them. You already know that John goes on to make some great films. The Thing, and Escape from New York, and Big Trouble in Little China. Meanwhile, Nick Castle and Tommy Lee Wallace both get their own big breaks. Nick, our graceful Michael Myers, directs the Gregory Hines dance musical Tap. And Tommy finally gets to use that clown mask he rejected in favor of Captain Kirk when he directs the original miniseries of Stephen King's It. His Pennywise the Clown gave audiences a new nightmare. Come on up, Richie. I got a balloon for you. <laughs> As for Deborah Hill, after her breakup with John, she keeps producing his films for a while, and then she goes on to be a huge success on her own, producing Adventures in Babysitting and Clue and Big Top Peewee and The Dead Zone and The Fisher King. She is massively important, and still in newspaper interviews, she gets asked if she's ever going to get married. She doesn't, but she becomes a mentor to so many other female producers who rise up after her. Deborah is one of the people I most wanted to talk to making this show, but she died of cancer in 2005. I really wish I could have met her. Mustafa Khad also died that same year in a terrorist attack in Jordan. His son Malik that you just met made several of the sequels side by side with his dad and then stepped up and took over, along with the Weinsteins. So that is who is mostly responsible for all things Halloween going forward. There are nine Halloween sequels, and if you don't have time to rewatch them all this month but you want to sound super smart super fast... I'm going to give you a breakdown of the whole thing. So, get your knives and your hot takes ready for when Unmasked returns right after this quick break. Once again, this episode of Halloween Unmasked is brought to you by Shudder. 
the streaming service for everybody who wants to get super ghoulish this year and every year for the people who every day is Halloween. Shudder has the largest, fastest growing, specialized, picked out for you by super nerds library of horror films that you can find online anywhere. It is awesome. We're talking exclusive original films, we're talking exclusive series, we're talking classics, we're talking blockbusters. We are talking the full range of everything spooky. Old, new, young, stuff you've always meant to see, stuff you've never heard of. And one thing I really love about Shudder is they make these special groupings, these collections of things. So if you're in a certain type of horror mood, they got it all broken down. In fact, there's two horror collections they have on Shudder right now that I want to give a shout out to. The first is their collection of slashics, that is classic slasher films. We're talking Blood Rage, we're talking Sleepaway Camp, we're talking The Prowler, we're talking The Halloweens, of course, we're talking Blood Feast, the super gross-out Herschel Gordon-Lewis movie that made people just be like, oh my god, can they really do that? And then, once you got your slashics on, they also have another collection of smart slashers. That's newer slashers that tend to break the formulas, that tend to see all the rules and then smash through them. There is where you're going to find your Tucker and Dale versus Evil and your Sorority Row. You're going to find High Tension, this French movie. Oh my god, that's just going to blow your mind and make you think, here is where horror is headed now. There's a lot of prep for this podcast that I did watching Shudder, so this is your moment to go watch some too. Try Shudder free for 14 days. Go to Shudder.com slash podcast and use the promo code UNMASKED. That's Shudder, S-H-U-D-D-E-R dot com slash podcast. Use the promo code UNMASKED and get started getting spooky today. And we are also brought to you by Universal Orlando's Halloween Horror Nights, which brings together the stories and visions of the world's most notorious creators of horror. Select night September 14th to November 3rd in Universal Studios, Florida. From cinematic greats and crazed current cult favorites to the park's original abominations, every year the legend grows and the experience reaches beyond your wildest nightmares. Enter terrifying haunted houses inspired by the biggest names in horror, including Michael Myers. And you are never going to be quite sure if your spine is tingling with dread or sheer excitement. Surrounded in shadow by screams and mad laughter, face nightmares creatures on streets twisted into sinister scare zones. As the sun sets on days filled with thrills, the night awakens with a frightening chill. Lose yourself in outrageous live shows filled with diabolically entertaining surprises. And escape to some of Universal Studios' most exhilarating attractions, where heart-pounding takes on a different meaning until the horror calls you back. Learn more at HalloweenHorrorNights.com. And now, back to the show. And we are back. And I'm about to welcome in the most adorable horror freak I know. His name is Sam Zimmerman. He is the curator of Shudder. We're going to talk about all the sequels. But real fast, I just want to say that Sammy is a long friend of mine. I've known him forever. I think he's a genius. And we booked him to be on the show before we knew that we had Shutter ads, so he's not a plant. Okay. So now, real quick, because we're about to talk about a lot of films real fast, it will help to think of the Halloween franchise in chunks. One and two are a pair. They take place on the same night, and they're made by mostly the same crew. Three is a standalone weirdo. Four, five, and six get into family dynasties, with Michael chasing Laurie Strode's daughter and Dr. Loomis chasing him. Seven and eight are the post-scream meta-slashers, and then nine and ten are Rob Zombie gone wild. So, picture a timeline with five major blood splats. Got it? Then let's begin. All right, so let's get into all things sequels. I am sitting with the amazing Sam Zerman. He's a curator at Shudder. Hey, Sammy. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Sam, we have a lot of ground to cover when we're talking about Halloween sequels. All competing timelines and mythologies. Exactly. But they kind of got stuck doing this Halloween 2 first that was just 
a direct sequel taking place seconds after the original film ends with yes. Laurie Strode being taken to the hospital and with everybody on set of this film not wanting to make Halloween 2 at all. Halloween 2 uh, is actually one of my favorites, both for reasons that I think it's a really fun sort of cheap movie and kind of mean, but also just for very pure nostalgic reasons. is one of the films that really got me into horror as a kid. Here's the thing about Halloween 2 that's so different from Halloween 1. It is really violent. I think the hot tub death might be the meanest, which if you haven't seen the film, he tricks the woman into thinking he's her boyfriend and then drowns her very fiercely in the hot tub by, you know, repeatedly dunking her. And it's just really frightening and upsetting and horrible. It's not just a stab. It's it's scalding someone. It's drowning them at the same time. And there's a level, I think, of ferocity that isn't in the first one. The first one is so much about dread and suspense. And Halloween 2 really is a straight up slasher movie. Yeah, and you sense that even John Carpenter and Deborah Hill are kind of mad to be making this film, even yeah. as they're making it. It feels sort of like they're giving their own franchise. To me, it feels like they're giving it the middle finger. At the end, they blow up Michael. Totally. And they're like, he is dead now. We are over. We don't want to do this anymore. Well, I think the famous anecdote, right, is that John Carpenter wrote it in a night with a six-pack, right? Like, he was just, I'm going to bang this out. I'm going to do this. But you're saying that John Carpenter came up with this idea that Laurie Strode is Michael Myers' sister while drunk on a six-pack of beer? I mean, I don't want to say that, but it's quite possible. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it seems like... It's sort of the twist that uh, no one was happy about since, and it only (laughs) made things more complicated later on. Exactly, exactly, because everything changes when Laurie Strode is his sister. Yes. It seems like that kind of cheap gotcha twist. John Carpenter's whole point in Halloween was that Michael Myers is killing people just because. Yeah, the boogeyman is real. He'll come, he'll find you no matter who you are. There's no reason, right? There's no personal attachment. Wait, I've never thought about this before, but Halloween 2 comes out after Empire Strikes Back, right? Do you think John Carpenter was inspired by <laughs> by the big Darth Vader, Luke, I am your father reveal? He was like, oh, I can do that in our sequel too. Yeah, you, you might have to ask Big JC. That girl, that Strode girl, that's Michael Myers' sister. She was born two years before he was committed. Two years after his parents died and she was adopted by the Strodes. They requested that the records be sealed in order to protect the family. Jesus, don't you see what he's doing here in Haddonfield? He killed one sister 15 years ago. Now he's trying to kill the other. So Halloween 2 ends, gigantic explosion. We got to end this here. And so they try to do a new thing in the third film, which is they have Tommy Lee Wallace, who's been there from the beginning, who actually turned down directing Halloween 2, but was like, I will do three. I can do it justice now. And they tried to do a story that had absolutely nothing to do with Michael Myers. Yeah, and, and for a very long time, it was the real stepchild of the series, both, I think, in terms of its creators and the fans. Yeah, what would you say Halloween 3 is about? Halloween 3 is about a warlock selling Halloween masks to children with pieces of Stonehenge in them. And on Halloween night, the idea is that a ad for the masks will melt all of the children's brains. And you see a great demonstration of that and probably... The most iconic scene from Halloween 3 where a young boy is watching the Silver Shamrock ad and they're singing and it's however many more days till Halloween. And the mask starts to sort of cave in on his face and implode on his face and crater. And there are maggots and worms and spiders and all these wonderful things crawling out of the mask as his face is just opening up into this sort of pit of hellish insects. And it really is frightening. When I was a kid and first getting into genre... And horror films, uh, one of my aunts got me a three VHS pack of the first three Halloweens. The thing I love about that is it was it was a little bit before constant Wikipedia and Googling and making sense of things immediately. 
So I had no context for Halloween three. I just watched it because I watched them all sort of in succession and fell in love with it and, but didn't get it. I didn't understand why it was this weird thing. I didn't understand why it didn't have Michael Myers. I, I just knew that it was masks and it was weird beyond compare. And it really took hold of me in a major way uh, to the point where I have a Halloween three tattoo. Uh, it's the three masks. Oh my God, the... it takes up your entire forearm. Yeah, yeah. Yes, kids, you too can own one of the big Halloween three. That's right, three horrific masks to choose from. They're fun, they're frightening, and they glow in the dark. I love this film with all my heart. And I think it's a weird, fascinating movie, both because of what it is and because of sort of its own mystique. It was a failure. It made them bring back Michael Myers. People hated it for so long. For so long, you would say, I think Halloween 3 is great. And people would be like, that's the one without Michael Myers. You're crazy. That movie sucks. But it doesn't. It's it's amazing and weird on every possible level. Okay, so after Halloween 3, after everybody's mad, the Akkad family decides to bring it back. Mustafa Akkad is like, okay, 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 giant reset. Like, he's taken over from Erwin Yablins at this point and kind of bought him out because he had a deeper pocketbook of money. And so I think of the next three movies, the late 80s and early 90s Michael Myers films as being like the Michael Myers is so here that he is in the title. Yes. Like every single one of these movies is like Michael Myers, the return, the revenge of Michael Myers. We assure you Michael Michael Myers Myers. is in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. 100% pure proof Michael Myers will be in this movie killing people. What would you say the story is of these three, of this chunk? Four and five follow a young girl named Jamie Lloyd who is... Laurie Strode's daughter, but now living with a different family. And she's an orphan. She's an orphan. Laurie Strode has died in a car accident. Yes, she's been adopted. And the return of Michael Myers. He comes back and he comes after her. It seems now he wants to kill his bloodline. Ten years ago, he tried to kill Laurie Strode. Now he wants her daughter. Are you talking about Jamie Lloyd? Wherever she is, that little child is in mortal danger. The film has a lot of fans, uh, four and five especially. There's something about four and five that I think really gave fans what they wanted with bringing back Michael Myers. But what four did that's fascinating is its very ending. Four, by and large, is a sort of standard slasher movie. It's probably my least favorite. Yeah, but the end of four has the absolute greatest twist. You've got yes. You've got Danielle Harris, who's a child. She's so young in this. And what you realize at the end is that she has that same killer bloodlust. There's that awesome scene where they're kind of mimicking the opening of one. You go up the stairs of the house. There's a kid in a clown costume. Yeah, she's in that. And she's holding a knife and she's the killer now, which I, the first time I saw that, I was like, oh my God. No! No! Well done. Which would be amazing if they did anything with it. And then five doesn't. And so five I find interesting because four and five are grouped together so much, mostly because they're back to back. They both feature Daniel Harris as Jamie Lloyd. But four actually ends up a bit of a weird outlier because it does build up to that amazing ending that doesn't really go anywhere in five. It just kind of becomes the telepathic connection between Jamie Lloyd and Michael Myers, not that Jamie Lloyd's now killing. I mean, telepathy, we're getting so complicated. Uh, what, Everyone I, was doing it. I mean, what's the, I think Friday the 13th 7 is the one with uh, the, the pseudo Carrie, and she has a sort of telekine- telekinetic battle with Jason. Yeah, I mean, it kind of bums me out that Halloween starts the slasher franchise really in full, and then it just starts to become 
a trend chaser. But some really cool things shine through, especially in five. I mean, there are two things that start to pop up throughout the movie. One of them is a tattoo on Michael Myers' wrist, which is like a rune symbol. The other is this mysterious man in black. Uh, and you don't really see him. You see him like get off a bus. You see his boots. He's in a black leather duster or not. I don't know if it's leather. I think it's just a black duster, which I don't know why anyone ever thought dusters were cool, but comes out. And then at the very end of Halloween five, and I'm sorry if you've never seen Halloween five, but I'm going to tell you all about the end. Jamie Lloyd is at the police station. They have caught Michael Myers. He's sitting in a jail cell, which is a very funny image. It's very like humbling of this idea of the shape and the boogeyman. It's Michael Myers is like chilling in a jail cell, but he's there. Loomis is there. Everyone's there. Then the man in black shows up and basically shoots down the police station. Um, And everyone's dead. He takes Michael Myers. And that's where it leads. So six opens in some underground lair of the Cult of Thorn. I highly suggest you watch Halloween 6, if if for nothing else than for Paul Rudd's film debut. And gives a great deal of exposition about the Cult of Thorn. I think Michael is under the influence of an evil rune. Thorn. I saw the symbol marked up where we found Jamie stabbed. Well, there are runes of light, protection. If Thor could somehow be trapped by these runes, the energies could cancel themselves out. The evil could be destroyed. There are sacrificial elements, but they basically sort of give Michael Myers the will to kill and control him in a lot of ways. Well, and I love that you have Paul Rudd showing up as Tommy, the kid that yes. Laurie was babysitting yes. in the very, very, very first 1978 A grown-up Tommy Doyle. Tommy Doyle grew up to be like, I mean, Tommy Doyle would never grow up to look like yeah. Paul Rudd. Tommy Doyle is like a redhead. Nobody believes me. I believe you, Tommy. And the movie itself is just kind of nuts. Yeah, four, five, and six, this like 80s chunk, they're just all about continuity. They're like, here was the formula of the first one. What can we do with that to make it work? Because you have your Michael Myers and you have your Donald Pleasance. You have Loomis being there, being really the human through line. Loomis yes. is the guy, Donald Pleasance is the guy who really carries this franchise forward and says, this is of a piece. Michael Myers is my business. Every Halloween movie, Loomis is so much fun to watch because he he's a raving lunatic, just running around town, screaming about Michael Myers, either giving history or just alarming people. It's been my life work and my ultimate failure. This force, this thing that lived inside of him came from a source too violent, too deadly for you to imagine. It it grew inside him, contaminating his soul. Mrs. Strode, I beg of you, don't let your family suffer the same fate that Laurie and her daughter suffered. But it feels like around this time, people are getting sick of slasher films. So it's in 95 and it's just before Scream. So it's just before the real revitalization. So it does feel a little tepid. It feels a little silly. Okay, so then let's set up what's happening between 6 and H2O, this Scream era. Because at this moment, if you're a person who likes horror films, they have gotten so boring. It's all just like, Michael, Freddy, Jason, Michael, Freddy, Jason, Michael, Freddy, Jason. Yeah, that wave really tired itself out. And there are a lot of really inventive, interesting horror movies in the first half of the 90s, but I think they weren't they weren't seen or you have to remind people of them. You know, when you say Candyman's great, people go, oh, of course, I love Candyman. You bring up Tales from the Hood, even Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which is like a big forerunner to Scream. It's like it's like his dry run of sort of meta commentary and really investigating why we tell scary stories. You have to remind people. You have to really remind people at the first half of the 90s because I think Scream ended up being so impactful and then later the Blair Witch Project. 
Yeah. So then Scream shows up and Scream is basically Kevin Williamson saying, I love Halloween. Let's make this fresh again. He basically builds this movie around Halloween in a lot of ways. Halloween's running in the background the Mm -hmm. whole time. It's like layered on top of it. They're talking about Jamie Lee and her tits, of course, the whole thing. And it basically makes slashers fun again. Scream is awesome, by the way. It's a great, great movie. So in 1998, something really interesting happens, which is Jamie Lee Curtis is like, Scream was a huge hit. And you know what? It's 20 year anniversary. I think I am ready to do a horror film again. And she decides to bring it back. And she starts by talking to Kevin Williamson from Scream to say, let's do this. I want to do a Halloween that's your style. And they come up with H2O, which I think is pretty fun. It's a pretty fun movie. I mean, it's directed by Steve Miner, who did a couple Friday the 13th sequels, but also Dawson's Creek. And Halloween H2O has this major Dawson's Creek vibe. Well, we thought we'd hit the town, pick up some guys, you know, drop some roofies in their drinks, have a whole date rape evening. Huh. Sounds good. Care to join us? I can't. I'm uh, I'm having my nipples pierced. Oh. It's certainly in that mold with humor, with that sort of teen melodrama vibe, but doesn't go as heavy into the sort of wink and meta-commentary. It still respects the series or, or tries to. You know, it gave us one of the great Halloween moments of when Jamie Lee finally sees Michael for the first time again through that sort of window in the door. And however you feel about H2, I think everyone knows that image. And I think everyone got a really big kick out of that image. It also, of course, has LL Cool J with a very silly plot about wanting to be an erotic fiction writer, I think. He turned just in time to see her enter the room with her long, slender legs. They climbed high up a skirt, leading to two tumultuous, round, melon breasts. Gotta give me a chance, honey. I have to express myself creatively. What I like about H2O is you feel that this is the film where Jamie Lee Curtis actually gets involved. You know, because one, she's there and she's participating, but she's 19. It's her first movie. This, this is not her baby. Two, she's just mad. H2O, she's like, I know who Laurie Strode is now. I've had 20 years to really think about this. She's strong. She's powerful. She fights. She's angry. She's traumatized. She's an alcoholic in this movie. Mm-hmm. She lies to everybody about her past. She's going under a fake name. She's really thought about this character, and the character feels real to her now. Yeah, that's what's very interesting both about H2O and the new Halloween. We basically have two different versions of how Jamie Lee would portray an adult Laurie Strode and how she's internalized what happened to her. And the new Halloween, I think everyone obviously gets a sense of who she is. She's very paranoid and survivalist and sort of using that trauma as fuel. Uh, And H2O, you're right, she's hiding very much. She's drinking it away. And now she's the headmistress of a very posh, secluded private school in Northern California. Hoping and praying every year that her brother won't find her. You're telling me the truth? Yeah, H2O is when they come in and they're like, everything that you just saw did not happen. Yes. Halloween 2 happens, I think, but everything else doesn't happen. We yeah. have killed 3, 4, 5, and 6, Yeah, which is brutal. That's it's so brutal. brutal. <laughs> and, and it's kind of the funny thing about this, this series. You know, a lot of people, I think, were a little bit up in arms about the new one saying, we're only going after the first one. We're only considering it a companion to the first one. But, you know, the series has done that. You know, I mean, 3 is just out in the wind doing its own thing. Four and five and six are have a weird continuity. Uh, H2O and Resurrection have their own vibe. Um, the series is no stranger to scrapping everything. It's almost like the Halloween franchise is a serial killer of itself. <laughs> it's just like, you liked Michael Myers, he's gone. 
you liked that plot line, it's dead. Everything you've loved in this franchise is over and will not happen again. Please, I am begging you to reconsider your decision. Dr. Loomis, perhaps you should reconsider keeping him as your patient. If I had to describe these two post-slasher Halloweens, where Jamie Lee Curtis even dies in the second mm-hmm. one in Halloween Resurrection at the beginning of it, they feel like they are just meta-commentarying on everything. I mean, Halloween Resurrection feels like it's attacking reality TV. Yeah, which is interesting because it was doing it before we got a glut of films that wanted to satirize reality TV and that whole culture. So it's interesting they're doing it so, quote-unquote, early. Um, but Resurrection's, of course, just very bad. It's bad, but it, I enjoy how it's at least playing with the tropes that you even see of Scream, of like people taking on or other identities. You have... Was it Busta Rhymes is running around in a Michael Myers mask, yeah. pretending to be M- Michael Myers to freak people out, but then running into real Michael Myers? It's so it's so satirical about what we're doing in media, at least in the time. It's a bad movie, but, but it's trying. It's trying something. It's it's at least got a different target. It's not talking about runes. It's talking about us. Yeah, it's about it's, it's a movie with ideas, and then of course, is maybe the victim in a lot of ways of some something like Five and Six are, where they're sort of the hangover of a trend. And Resurrection was a little bit the hangover of that sort of post-Scream slasher wave. So it's not a great movie, and people were tiring of that vibe. You need to get the hell out of here! Get out! Scoop! Skedaddle! Get the fuck out of Dodge! All right, so now we got to talk about the zombies. That's yes. our last wave that we've got going yes. on here. The zombies are fascinating to me because I feel like Rob Zombie takes everything that John Carpenter did. You know, a sympathetic, vulnerable, virginal Laurie Strode a boogeyman we don't understand, um, a normal world that feels kind of like ours, and he just does the exact opposite. Like, this is a Laurie Strode who starts, like, her first scene as a teenager finger-banging a bagel. This is a world where everybody, everyone in Haddonfield is, like, a rapist or a creep or a jerk or a stripper or an abusive dad. Everyone is horrible and worthy of death. And Michael Myers, of course, gets this gigantic backstory. Like, the whole first part of the film is him as a child, being an abused child, growing mm-hmm. up in a household of a lot of violence. Let me tell you something, that freak of yours, he needs some serious discipline. I mean, he runs around like a little bitch. You, know, you leave him alone. Keep your hands off him. Give me a fucking break. He's probably a queer. He's going to grow up, end up cutting his dick and balls off and changing his name to Michelle. Yeah, I mean, Rob Zombie is fascinating, and I really admire his work as a director, and I know the Halloween films are so divisive. Again, he's trying something... The slasher films, especially the sort of golden age of slasher films, were so much about this evil coming to the suburbs that, you know, these families, many of them white, ran away to live in in some sort of comfort, some sort of safety. And here it is. It's it, the, the boogeyman still coming. Danger is still coming. And what Rob did is he's so interested in a seedier aesthetic and he's sort of shining the light on the suburbs in a different way. I don't necessarily agree with the idea that you had to draw out so much of Michael Myers' backstory, but he did. And it's what's so distinctive about that movie because the later half, when he sort of transitions into just remaking Halloween, it deflates a bit. Even if ideologically you are so against the first half of Rob Zombie's Halloween, it's his and it's something that you have to engage with or be challenged by and you're sort of like, what is going on here? I don't know if I like it. I don't know what it is, but it's his own. And I think that's what makes the last act or the sort of last structure of Halloween a little bit disappointing. And it's why I love his Halloween too, because that to me really feels like his own weird thing. 
it's angry and it's weird. In the same way, Halloween 2, the original was very reactive and angry. I think Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 is reactive. It's angry. It's surreal. You know, if you thought the cult stuff in 4, 5, and 6 was kind of silly and weird, he's injecting white horses and Michael Myers' dead mom guiding him around. It's kind of incredible. You were walking down this white hallway with this big white horse saying you were going to come and take me back home. Mm. Wish I could take you home, honey. I miss you there. Miss you too. Mm. Whenever you look at the horse, you can think of mommy, okay? Okay. Okay. I don't like them just because they depress me so much because everyone in them is grim. Everybody can't help being miserable. They even describe something as simple as eggs as chicken abortions. Yeah. It's like this miserable view of it the is. world that I cannot stand I cannot stomach being inside of it. It's extremely bleak and extremely harsh and it's interesting that he was able to do that with such an iconic franchise and mythology and really go for it. I mean Halloween 2 is is brutal in a lot of ways. Uh, and it's kind of the reason why I love it. It is so his own thing. And sort of what's happening at this time period is the Rob Zombie Halloweens represent how we were running so dry of ideas with our franchises that we just started making prequels about everything. When he decided to make this like prequel story of more of Michael Myers's childhood. I mean, this is like post Bambi 2, the Exorcist prequels, the Star Wars prequels, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre prequel. Yeah. And so he was doing that himself. He was like, you want more of this character. You love this character. I mean, he really dials into the love of Michael Myers. The Rob Zombie films, I feel like, love Michael Myers more than anybody else in the films. Honestly, they yeah. want to stick up for him. I love you, Mama. I love you too, Michael. And that, that era was really interesting because we were seeing all of our slasher icons remade and and given those backstories, those sort of kind of unnecessary things. I mean, the Nightmare on Elm Street remake adds some stuff. There's the Texas Chainsaw prequel. And a lot of them feel very half-baked. Uh, but the Halloween and Halloween 2, however much you do or don't like them, feel made and sort of singular in what they are. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's impossible to do a slasher series that is always cool. Of course. I mean, I think most slasher series and the fans you talk to, myself included, you know, it, we love them because of their faults. We love the sequels because of the things they do wrong or because of the ridiculous things or the expansions in mythology that don't always make sense. Uh, that really is sort of what endears a lot of the sequels to us. They feel very much our own. You know, we, we'll love you, you know? Uh Wait, are you saying you'd love them less if they were good? No, but I think we find the things we love about them and defend those things. You're making it sound like people who are slasher films are like really sweet guys who just always stick up for the underdog in school. You're describing these in terms of like, don't pick on my friend. <laughs> Many of us are. I think I think a lot of us, you know, we're not, you know, I would never be blind to any of the faults in a lot of the Halloween sequels, but I've come around to a lot of them for what they're trying to do, you know, uh, especially five. And, you know, res even Resurrection, I mean, it's it's not good, but the what at least we can sit here and, and agree that it has ideas, agree that it's trying something. And, you know, it's a lot to say for something. Hmm. And at least agree that it gave, you know, Buster Rhymes a role. That's awesome. I mean, you know, Trick or Treat Motherfucker is amazing, you know? <laughs> what a line. It's so funny. Trick or Treat Motherfucker. Well, Sammy... Thank you for coming and being a weirdo with a Halloween 3 tattoo and running through all of these sequels with us. <laughs> well, whether I was here or not, I would always be a weirdo with a Halloween 3 tattoo, but I was very happy to come.
Thanks again to Sam Zimmerman from Shudder, and thanks again to Phil Nobile Jr. of Fangoria, who has just resurrected the magazine with a Halloween special edition that is their issue number one. You've got to check it out. Now let's end this episode with motivational words of wisdom from Busta Rhymes and Halloween Resurrection. It's okay to be scared, you know. Being scared is good. Fear is good. Fear must be good, right? Because let's be real. The fact that humans like to watch horror movies, that we like to watch people get killed, is pretty crazy. Fear motivates. Fear gives you the feeling of being alive. Get this, Busta is biologically right. And on the next episode of Halloween Unmasked, we're going to try to understand all things fear. What fear does to our bodies, why we like to watch horror movies to get our fix, and why horror films are good for humanity. Even when people get scared that slasher flicks have inspired real-life murders. Fear makes me want to throw up. Trust me, please. When it's all said and done, at the end of the day, you'll be surprised at how much you surprise yourself. And you will be surprised by what we learn about fear in episode 6. See you then. Halloween Unmasked is a co-production of The Ringer and Neon Hum Media. It was written and hosted by me, Amy Nicholson, and our producers are Jonathan Hirsch, Zach Mack, and Greta Weber. Production assistance from Kaya McMullen and Karen Navatia. And additional support and a special thanks to Bill Simmons, Sean Fennessy, and Juliet Littman. And an ultra-special thanks to you creeps for listening to Halloween Unmasked. <laughs>